Hi, it's Robin McMahon here. I'm the host of Parenting Our Future. And if you're listening to this podcast, I want to thank you so much for being here. I also want you to know that I'm a former angry mom. I used to yell and rage and threaten and punish my kids because I wasn't getting the cooperation or the behavior that I felt I should be getting. And I struggled for many years, not knowing how to change or knowing what to do differently. It wasn't until I found the world of peaceful parenting that I learned why my kids acted the way they did and also why I was so angry and triggered. I was able to heal my anger and leave my triggers behind so that I could focus on being the calm and confident parent I always expected myself to be. I can tell you that feeling connected to your kids is the best feeling in the world. My two boys are teenagers now, and we have a strong relationship that is rooted in deep connection. And where there is connection, there's cooperation. Parenting is the most important job we do, but it's the hardest job we do. And we do it without understanding the fundamentals of the way our kids grow and develop. We do it without knowing the way their brains work or what their behavior is actually really telling us. So it's no wonder it's so hard. And it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to say, this is harder than I thought it would be. And that's where I come in. I can help you and I can support you so that you can have the cooperation and enjoy being a parent. You can book a free call with me on my website, parentingforconnection.com. And if you want to download my free guide, how to turn a no into cooperation, go to triggerfreeparents.com. I really hope you enjoy the show. Thanks for listening. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Parenting Our Future. Oh, my gosh. Okay. I don't know if you know this, uh, if you haven't heard me say this, but I love talking about the brain. I am such like a geek for the brain. And I always say that unless you understand the way the brain works, the way brain development takes place, as a parent, you're missing a really big chunk of what makes our kids tick. And it also means that we misunderstand a lot of the behavior that we see. And that means we go and we try to punish it. We try to change our kids. We try to change the behavior and so on. When actually it could just be the way the brain is developing, the way the brain works. So I have the most wonderful expert here. You guys are going to love her. And I can't wait to share everything that she has to, to teach you. I have Dr. Loretta Bruning here. She is a PhD and is the founder of the Inner Mammal Institute and is a professor emerita of management at California State University, East, East Bay. She's the author of many personal development books, including Habits of a Happy Brain, Retrain Your Brain to Boost Your Serotonin, Dopamine, oxytocin and endorphin levels. And we're going to talk a lot about those four chemicals. She is a teacher and a parent. And while she was in those early years, she wasn't convinced by the prevailing theories of human motivation. Then she learned about brain chemistry that we share actually with earlier mammals and everything started to make sense. She began creating resources that have helped thousands of people make peace with their inner mammal. Dr. Bruning's work has been translated into 12 languages, is cited in major media as well. And the Inner Mammal Institute offers videos, podcasts, books, blogs, multimedia, and a training program. So I am so happy to welcome you here, Dr. Bruning. Welcome. So happy to have you here. 
Sure. Nice to be here. And thanks for that fabulous introduction. Oh, you're welcome. Okay. So tell me about the Inner Mammal Institute and what is the whole objective around it? So the objective is to teach people about the brain chemistry that we've inherited from earlier mammals. Uh, the simple thing is that it teaches us that our happy chemicals are not designed to be on all the time. They mm -hmm. evolve to reward you with little moments of happy feelings when you take action to meet a survival need. And it's so valuable to know that because then you don't feel like something's wrong with you if you're not happy every minute. You don't feel like something's wrong with your child if you're not happy every minute. You understand why you do surprising things to stimulate your happy chemicals, why your child does surprising things to stimulate them. And this all gives us the power then to develop healthier ways to stimulate them. And when I say healthier, there's no one right way for everyone, but it's just a skill that we have to keep uh, evolving our wiring, keep adding to our wiring instead of just repeating old habits. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. There's a lot there. Okay. So <laughs> first and foremost, you are saying that we're not supposed to be happy all the time that actually our brain is not wired for that, that it's more of like a payoff to an action that we've taken. Exactly, exactly. And that's very opposite from what you hear from many academics because they make it sound like you're just supposed to be happy just sitting around watching the stars or something. But, and of course a person can psych themselves for that. And I know many people believe that, but when you look from the animal perspective, Animals have to meet their needs all the time. And our ancestors were the same way. They had to find food and water and firewood mm. constantly or they would die. And the happy chemicals evolved to reward you with a good feeling when you say, oh, look, there's water, there's food. And then you take that action to move toward it. That's the job our brain evolved to do. And that's what stimulates our happy chemicals. Interesting. So, you know, it's so also interesting that we're still wired for survival. It's like these outdated systems in our brain, because the problem is, is that when we use them the wrong way, for example, anxiety, right? Anxiety is there to protect us. But when we, and, and this, you're the expert, so tell me where I have this wrong, if I have this wrong, but when we use it in everyday life, you know, anxiety over a test or anxiety over, you know, um, you know, having to go to the grocery store or what, whatever, whatever it is, that mm. isn't a threat to our survival. Yes, exactly. So uh, we can be grateful for the survival system we have because we're here today because our ancestors survived. And what most people don't realize is their anxiety comes from the fact that their life is so easy that they have this huge survival system evolved for big dangers. And when you have no big dangers, your brain looks for danger. So whether you make a big deal out of a molehill or whether you look 10 years, 100 years into the future for potential threats, you're constantly scanning for potential threats because that's the, brain, the job your brain evolved to do. So what do you define as a threat is anything that activated a threat chemical in your past. So if I grew up starving and with lice and you know mm. going to the outhouse with rats at night and then 
that's the kind of danger I would be looking for. But if I grew up in a comfortable, safe environment where the worst thing that ever happened to me is I wasn't invited to a party, then that's what stimulated my threat chemicals. And that's what connected my neurons to react to not getting invited to a party with the full alarm system that has kept our ancestors alive for thousands of years. So it's kind of like your baseline. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Exactly. You're setting your alarm system to whatever you learn to define as an alarm from your own individual experience. And that experience includes your mirror neurons where you mirror the responses of those around you. So if your parents got upset about X, Y, and Z, then your mirror neurons activated and triggered real chemicals that paved real pathways that wired you to get upset about X, Y, and Z. Now, sometimes people said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do the opposite. And sometimes they succeed, but that's also because they wired themselves to do the opposite and they may be stuck in the opposite, which was me. But then other times you're actually repeating your parents' uh, responses yeah. without intending to. So <laughs> it's so interesting to know why do we use these old pathways? It's just because they're there and the electricity in your brain flows into the pathways you have, just like when it rains and the water flows into the little grooves that exist. That is so cool. I can't be more profound than that. That is so cool. Okay. So what you're saying is yes, those pathways are created in early life based on your experiences. And it's almost like, I think of it as, uh, like if, if you've ever gone cross country skiing and you've got those grooves in the snow that are already there, so they're already there. And so you just fall right back into those grooves. You just go back into the neural pathways that are set there. Yeah, that's a really good example because from snow, it's even harder to resist them than from water. So that's a great example. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. And and yeah. I do like your your water analogy yeah. too. I just like yeah. To, you know, I'm done for myself. Uh, yeah, but just the bottom line is that the pathways are not there because there's a right way and a wrong way and a best way. They're there just from chance. And I read a fascinating example of this from. Uh, in Sicily, where my grandparents grew up, the, if there was a rock in the road, a donkey would have to walk around it. And so the road went yeah. around the donkey, you know, and a hundred years later, even when the rock is gone, the, the road is still going around yeah. it. And that so is- that's pretty much how each generation can pass on its wiring. Yeah. And, and sometimes it's not healthy. It's not good. We didn't have the right coping skills and those mirror neurons help us to learn, you know, what other people are doing because there is a hierarchy in our families. We're always looking to somebody who is more in charge, more in control, more powerful, whatever it is to see how they act and react, what they say, what they do. So we know what to do, right? Sure. But we don't have to do too much fault finding because there is no perfect way. Uh, I explain in the book, there's no perfect way to manage any of these chemicals. Every single one of them has a job to do. So there's like four different good feelings. We want all of them, but every one of them, if 
that were on all the time, then it couldn't do its job. We need it to be having these motivational spurts in appropriate circumstances. Now, what is appropriate? Well, it's sort of a trade-off because when you get more of this, then sometimes you get less of that. We all have limited energy. So we have to decide, should I put my energy in working toward this reward or that reward? So rather than you know focusing on what's wrong with us, mm. I, I try to look for the self-acceptance and to say, we can enjoy our next step. We can stimulate happy chemicals with our next step. And there are some bad ways to stimulate them where you feel good in the short run, but then you, you have worse consequences in the long run. But once you understand your old habits of stimulating them, then you could say, oh, well, I have hundreds of other ways to stimulate my happy chemicals. And I can do that with my next step. I love that. I love that you are taking the blame because my goodness, do we have, you know, so many ways that we blame ourselves, especially moms, you know? So I love that you said that. And thank you for saying that. So let's talk about that for a minute. What are some of the good ways to stimulate dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, endorphin? Those are the four that we're talking about. How do we, what are good ways to stimulate them? And then the bad ways that you mentioned where we stimulate them for the short term, but long-term not so good. And let's talk all about that if you don't mind. Sure, I'm happy to. The answer will be a little long because first I have to explain what stimulates them in nature. What's the animal impulse that we have? And then what are some of the ways that we can express it? So dopamine is that core feeling of excitement that you have when you anticipate meeting a need. So you can imagine a monkey waking up in the morning and nobody feeds the monkey. Nobody has a refrigerator or a supermarket. So the monkey has to look for food. It looks around and if it sees something, it thinks it can get that feeling, feeling of excitement turns on and that's dopamine, which says I can get that. So that's what we're always looking for. Something that you think that can meet my needs and I can get it. And once it turns on that excited feeling that motivates you to take a step toward it and each step closer triggers more dopamine. So in the modern world where your survival needs are already met, then we look for other ways to stimulate this sense of excitement because mm -hmm. in, in a harsher life, you would use up your energy just trekking after firewood and water and, you know, trying mm -hmm. to get your cows back, <laughs> you know? So, <laughs> yeah. So um, some people, when I explain that, they might think about, you know, the excitement that they feel of ordering a pizza or um, opening a bottle of wine. And other people mm. might think about training for a marathon. Um, and other people might think about applying for a new job. So anytime you think, oh, I really want that, and that motivates you to take action toward it. So uh, um, when we have this feeling, we often don't like to admit it because we think, well, I shouldn't be excited about that. I should be excited about that other thing. Uh, so it's important to know that whatever triggered it in your past is what built the pathways. And that's why we get excited about things that we were not really intending to be excited about. And often it's very random things, which I give a lot of examples in my book and any individual can figure out their own unique examples of 
like, yeah, it's just random chance. You know, my, my father got excited about the halftime show in football. So I focus on the halftime show in football. It just little minutious. Um, and then you connect it to something else and you connect it to something else. So a healthy way of getting it is to have a short run goal, a long run goal, and a middle term goal. And then you can have a little bit of that excitement every day because you've set a short term goal that you know you can reach, something mm. you can do in a few minutes. So you always have something that you have control over. A long-term goal is something that gives you more of a sense of excitement about the future. But if you set it too high, then you don't feel like you're moving toward it. And you actually have to see yourself moving toward it to stimulate the dopamine. But if you spend five or 10 minutes a day on your long-term goal, that's enough to stimulate the good feeling. And if you can't manage if you don't have any uh, sense of um, accomplishment from that, mm. change the goal. And so a middle-term goal is somewhere in between where, again, you um, have that joy of accomplishment that you have control over rather than always feeling that your excitement depends on events that you have no control over. Okay. Okay. So can you give me examples of the short, the middle, and the long? Just yeah. So I'll give you a funny short-term example that maybe most people will cringe. So I have, this is explained in my book, Tame Your Anxiety. Okay. So awesome. I have this sock drawer and I couldn't close the drawer because it was so full of socks. And so every single day I would get frustrated by it, but why didn't I do something about it? Because I take out one pair of socks and look at it and think, I don't know what to do with that. I don't know where else to put it. And another one I'd look at and it would remind me of like, I, I never use this and I'm frustrated about that. And this one would remind me of like, I stopped playing tennis and will I ever play tennis again? Oh, so that's why we don't do things because we, we don't, we can't figure out. So I decided it's really stupid to be frustrated every single day about something that you could fix in 10 minutes. So set an alarm clock. 10 minutes, I'm going to work on this drawer. That's all it mm -hmm. takes to do enough. I don't have to make it perfect. It's just enough so that I could close it. And at the end of that 10 minutes, I'm going to give myself a reward. You could even say whatever dessert you were going to have that day anyway, don't have that dessert until you've spent your 10 minutes. Now, I have to tell you that after that 10 minutes, I felt so good that I didn't want to stop. And so this is the idea that when you have some difficult challenge, break it into small chunks, 10 minutes, even five minutes, one minute, just take a little chip, a little piece off that difficult project and you will feel surprisingly good, but then have a timer so that you don't drive yourself crazy of having to do it perfectly. You just have to do it enough so that you mm. can continue to move toward your various goals. Okay. So that would be one example. So another example is that um, in the natural world, if our ancestors found a fruit tree, they would get very excited and they would stuff themselves with fruit, but they would not spend the rest of their lives next to that fruit tree because then they wouldn't meet their need for protein or water. 
So mm. our brain habituates to any rewards that we have. And that's why when you get something you like, you're happy for a few minutes and then it stops feeling good because that need is already met. Your brain is habituated to it. And that's why you have to go and find something else that meets your needs. So that's why we never feel like we have enough. And, um, we always look for something new. It's absolutely normal and natural. And we just have to know where this is coming from so that we don't overreact to those dopamine dips that I get excited then the excitement ends. And when the excitement ends, I don't have to go into some loop of like, what's wrong yeah. with me. And yeah. you know, it's just to say, I'll start on my next thing. Wow. What a great piece of like, life lesson there. That is so great because yeah, I think it's the inner dialogue that we have that just really holds us back. So it's like our brain isn't in sync with our mind, right? Yes, exactly. And you know, for good reason, because it's literally true that the verbal part of your brain is not connected to your animal brain in the sense, let me explain that um, we have this thing called the limbic system, yeah. which people have heard of things like the amygdala and the hippocampus. It's basically the same in animals and animals can't talk. So the part of your brain that controls the chemicals that make you feel good and bad, it literally can't talk. So that's why it can't tell oh your gosh. verbal brain why it's releasing a good feeling or bad feeling. So your verbal brain goes off and spins its own explanation for things. And it thinks it runs the show, but it doesn't. Your verbal brain is literally not connected to your body. Your verbal brain is connected to your limbic brain, which is connected to your body. So in order to do something, you have to go through your mammal brain. In order to feel good, you have to go through your, your mammal brain. It's like the it's like, you know, here's the top of my head, the middle of my head in order to get to my neck, I have to go through the middle of my, and that's where my mammal brain is. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So, so, you know, ha having spent my whole life in academia, like the verbal brain is just pure BS, excuse me for saying, I call it your internal public relations agency that always makes you come up with some nice story that you make you, you feel good about yourself put a good face on things, but isn't really running the show. <laughs> I mean, that is the coolest description I've ever heard. You know, I, I remember when I first read an Eckhart Tolle book and he said, the mind is Maya, the mind is crazy. It's like, yeah, it, but it's that speaking mind that is like, it doesn't know what it's talking about really, but we listen to that instead of listening like to our bodies, to, to how we're feeling. Is that is that kind of an accurate way of saying it? Um, well, I don't say it that way, because if a person thinks I'm saying that, then they're saying, well, are you saying I should just do whatever I feel like? Well, then I'll oh, order yeah, another pizza, yeah. then I'll yeah. order another pizza, mm. then I'll order another pizza, because as soon as you're eating the pizza, the good feeling ends very quickly. In fact, the first few bites of the pizza is your surge of dopamine, and then the good feeling is over and your brain is onto the next thing because the next thing is what stimulates your dopamine. So the way I explain is sort of like a horse and rider that your verbal brain is like the rider that um, maybe it can see further into the distance because mm. that's what our human brain can do. And it has some logical ability to analyze more information. But 
the the rider on a horse it needs the horse's cooperation to get anywhere mm -hmm. so it needs to keep the the horse's needs calm and satisfied in order to feel good and mm -hmm. um since our time is limited uh, let's can we move on to the other two chemicals oh 100 percent. Well, uh, i in fact i was uh, i was just going to do that i mean look dopamine we all love it right um but so yes. so yeah let's talk about the other two Sure. So, um, uh, so the other two are somewhat social chemicals, uh, serotonin and oxytocin. And once again, mm -hmm. my uh, information coming from animal models is very different from the verbal story that you hear from a lot of internet wisdom and academic wisdom. Mm -hmm. So oxytocin is often called the social bonding chemical. But mm -hmm. if you understand how social bonding works in the animal world, it's not this idea of like, I'm going to follow the herd and I'm going to lay down my life for them. And they're not, they're going to lay down their life for me. It's like when I'm chased by a predator, I'm going to run to the herd and hide behind them. And maybe someone else will get eaten. So if you <laughs> expect your friends to like devote their lives to you and then they don't, and then you get all upset, it's just not a realistic understanding of how the brain works. Hmm. So we seek groups because we have a natural urge for protection. So hmm. we are born with this natural urge for protection. If you imagine like I'm a newborn baby and I have this hunter gatherer mother and she puts me down and then she's gathering fruit and then she can't find me. And so a newborn baby has the ability to cry. And so we're all born with this ability to cry and that gets our needs met. It gets us protection, but mm. that doesn't mean we have the right to the protection of a newborn every minute of every day, but we do have the longing for it because that's where we start in life. Aww. So that's the challenge of like, how do we get this protection we want, but in a realistic way so that we're not always disappointed and bitter and saying, what's wrong with them? Why didn't they protect me? Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of that internet wisdom and academic wisdom is, is focused on that self-righteous, like other people are bad because they didn't give me my, you know, or also, also you know, there's the stereotype of the person who always has to go to the pub in order to have that socially bonded okay. feeling and they don't know how to create it without going to the pub or whatever is one's equivalent of that yeah. or maybe children on the playground you notice that sometimes it's uh, stressful and mean-spirited and yet if you leave the group then you feel isolated and your mammal brain often thinks that a predator is going to eat you if you feel isolated. So yeah. this is, again, we always have this, you know, pros and cons. So good way of getting it rather than, you know, if a child participates in group activity that they dislike because they're afraid to be isolated, adults do that too. Mm -hmm. It's important to understand this. And what I tell myself is um, animals don't stay with the herd every minute. If you are with the herd every minute, then they pee on your grass and you only eat grass that's been peed on. <laughs> so animals actually would rather go their own way and only run back to the herd when they feel threatened by a predator. So we all have this urge to spread out and to go our own way 
and then gather when we feel threatened. So we want both and we can manage that with awareness rather than going from the bad, you know, the bad would be, oh, I feel threatened. I go back to the group, but then the group gets on my nerves. So I get isolated, but then I feel threatened. You know what I'm saying? So we have to do it with some self-acceptance of where these Mm. feelings are coming from. Okay. Oh, and the simple way to do that, what I call it is, um, I want protection from others naturally, but I can't control them. So I can't force people to do things for me. Mm-hmm. So I can get my oxytocin by building my side of the bridge. And I don't know when you will cross it. So if I build my side of the bridge to you today, you may cross it a year from now. So tomorrow I'll build my side of the bridge to someone else. And the next day my I'll build my side of the bridge to someone else. So I'm always building bridges with other people without the expectation that I can make them cross it right now and not trying to get anyone to do anything for me, but just having the confidence that I'm weaving a social network and it will be there for me when I need it. And then I'm giving myself the oxytocin of feeling safe without that obsession with having to have somebody protecting me every minute. Okay. Okay. So, and, and to be specific, when you're talking about building a bridge, you mean really creating relationships, creating connection, but it's only from your end. Exactly. Exactly. So an example of that, I'll give a bad example. A bad example would be that I take you out for an expensive dinner. Like that would be stupid. Like if you go and like do too much for everybody or a bad example would be, Mm. I tell you how to run your life. You know what I mean? (laughs) So a, a, a better realistic example would be, I think about what does Robin need today? What would help Robin feel protected? And then I give you what you need to feel protected, not not in a rescuing unhealthy way, but something small and something that feels natural to me. What do I have to give that could help Robin? And not to spend my whole life at it, but set a timer. I'm gonna spend five minutes a day at this, one minute a day at it, it's enough. You don't have to like obsess with um, rescuing other people, but just enough to be like weaving your web. Okay. Okay. I really like that. That's great. Okay. So building a bridge is really thinking about other people's needs. What could I do for them today? But it's small, bite-sized little bits, you know, every day, just really thinking about them. So like when I send my best friend, uh, a cute little meme that I was thinking about that says like, I love you. And here's all the reasons why. And then, yeah. you know, that's just like a little boost like that. I get a little, I get a little boost yeah. myself of yes, love exactly. for her. Exactly. And it's also authentic to you. Like you sent her something that you liked rather than doing something you hate just for them. Right. Right. And I know that it was received with love back. And so I think oxytocin has also been connected to like the love chemical, right? Exactly. Exactly. But I like to define love better because otherwise people 
end up bitter because they say, well, I love them and they didn't love me back. Yes. Well, so. very, very true. And I was thinking about that as you were saying that I'm like, well, that could be a, that could be a double-edged sword, but, but we don't even, we don't have time to go there. So we're going to go into serotonin, but then I have some questions that I want to get to, too, just related to the parenting piece. Right. So let's, uh, let's talk about serotonin and then, uh, yeah. Sure. So animals have a natural competitiveness. And once again, Mm -hmm. in the academic and internet world, this is sort of taboo. We're not supposed to be competitive. We're just supposed to, you know, I love everybody and everybody loves me. But in reality, animals take any, any energy they have after they fill their bellies into raising their status in their social group, because that leaves them with more resources in the long run and more mating opportunity and more surviving copies of their genes. So we have inherited a brain that rewards us with a good feeling when we raise our status or we make ourselves special. And that good feeling is serotonin. So you could see toddlers trying to make themselves special. You could see people you don't like trying to make themselves special. We always see it in others. But in fact, we all want to be special. But the reality is, I live in a world of seven, eight billion other people want to be special as much as me. So, you know, in kindergarten, one child gets to be the star of the week. And yeah. then every they have to deal with the fact that every other week, another child is the star. Okay. And then later, like you can't even be the star of the week unless you earn it. So we all want that good feeling of serotonin of like, Mm -hmm. I got it going on. And in the animal world, it gives you the confidence to reach for the banana because in the animal world, if you're weaker, the other guy will steal the banana and you won't get any. And if you reach for it, they'll actually bite you. So we've inherited a brain that's constantly comparing itself to others. And if I see that I'm in the position of weakness, it it turns on my stress chemicals. And if I see that I'm in the position of strength, it's like confidence, pride. I, I can relax because I know that I can meet my needs. And so we have to manage this constant urge to be special. It's healthy ways to manage it. There's unhealthy ways to manage it. But first we have to be honest about it. And if we're not, we only see it in other people and deny it in ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that being, yeah, I can see that if, if, you, if you feel less than the other person, you may start to do things to make up for it or you, yeah, yeah, okay. Okay, do we want to talk about endorphins? We could just very quickly. So endorphin is the body's natural opioid. It's only stimulated by real physical pain. We're not designed to inflict pain on ourselves to feel good. It's only for in the natural world, when you're injured, you know, there's no Mm. anesthesiologist to come and help you. So it gives you a few minutes of masking pain with a good feeling. So you can act to protect yourself and save yourself. But in the modern world, so we're not designed to seek endorphin by inflicting pain. We're designed to seek the other chemicals and just have endorphin for emergencies. Um, So all of these pain inflicting activities, I'm totally not a fan of, but it's good to know that laughing stimulates a little bit. And so make time for laughing in your life. You only get a little, but then you can laugh more and you get more. 
Okay. Okay. Well, that's, that's great. Okay. Okay. Thank you for that. Okay. So here's some questions I want to throw at you that I think are really great questions and uh, we're going to kind of rapid fire through them. So I want to talk about rewards and I want to talk about threats, right? And we've kind of talked about this already. So we're, you know, we're told that they're a bad strategy. I would say that I agree with that, that using threats and rewards isn't a great, as a, as a blanket statement, I'll say that, but what would you say about that? Because I I think you're going to throw that throw that uh, on its head. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah. So th- the brain is always learning from rewards and pain. It's just a fact. Okay. So you are unconsciously s- creating the reward structure of your child's life. And the rewards are not just the conscious rewards that you give, but what you give your attention to. Okay. So... Um, your child is always noticing and picking up on what gets your attention and what gets your respect. Now, it varies widely, but sometimes you give your attention and respect to someone who behaves with anger or with behaves with um, a sense of desperate hopelessness. I give up. And I noticed myself doing this, like I was too quick to rescue. So I'm effectively rewarding my child for failing. So that's just one example. Um, Then your children also observe how you treat third parties. So they're always keeping track, not consciously, of Mm -hmm. what gets rewarded and they wanna repeat whatever gets rewarded. So you wanna be very careful about what you reward. And again, if you're just saying, well, um, I I shouldn't, uh, rewards shouldn't matter is what they do. So we we have to notice and what is the reward that your child is responding to. And if you have a sticky situation, could experiment and just say, I'm going to just act differently. I don't have the answer yet, but today I'm going to try one thing different. Tomorrow I'm going to try another thing different and just experiment to see like at some point you'll stumble on, like you'll stop rewarding that thing that you don't want to reward and maybe they'll pick up on different cues. And when you say reward, you mean really pay attention to, is that right? Cause we're not talking like, here's a lollipop every time you do something good or bad, right? Like, can you, yeah, I just want to clarify that. Um, it's okay to, well, you don't want to use a lollipop and it's not every time, but if you've ever taken animal training, you know that those rewards have tremendous power. So if you are giving the lollipop after somebody does something, then everything else you do is going to not count as much. You know, like you may tell a person to do X, but if you really give them the lollipop for doing Y, you better notice that and change that. So that's the first Mm -hmm. example. Um, The next thing is um, you may do the opposite, like it's rewards and pain. So removing pain is a big motivator. So if you find fault a lot, that's pain. And your child may be very quick to look for ways to protect themselves from your fault finding. And that may be a big motivator in their behavior. But the biggest reward is, you know, when your child sees that you're happy and you're proud of them, that often that has a lot of reward value. Or, you know, God forbid, if you're, if you see like 
one of their friends do something and you're like, wow, that child did something good. And they get really annoyed and jealous Mm -hmm. and mad, but then they really put their effort into trying to do that. Can't do it too much because then they'll really be upset that, you know, you mean, but the bottom line is um, they're always keeping score in that way. And many people give uh, unwanted feedback. Like a simple example is the parent who hates school who unconsciously programs their child to hate school. The Mm -hmm. parent who always feels sick and unconsciously, or the parent who doesn't want to be left alone and unconsciously programs their child to fear going out into the world so that then they're not, so the parent's not left alone. The parent who unconsciously hates the other spouse and unconsciously rewards the child for hating. You get where I'm going. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Oh, what a tangled web we weave. I know, I know, isn't it? It's hard. No one can be perfect. <laughs> oh, yeah. Let's just say right now, there is no way you could be perfect. Like, how could you? And who would want to be anyway? Because that's just that's just really too hard. That's so good. But I, I again, I, I want to come back to that, you know, message of grace and understanding yourself, weaving that through all of our conversation here, because yeah, this is stuff we can't control, right? Or we can in a way, but yeah, we need we, to just We be can it. control it. We yeah. can control it. It's just that mm, we have to really notice it and give ourselves time and control it one chunk at a time. Yeah. Yeah. So can we talk about neuroplasticity in our kids? Yes. So neuroplasticity means that they're moldable. So how do you, how does that come into play when it comes to parenting, when it comes to kids growing and evolving through these adolescent years, these young years? Um, so you want, uh, so Neuroplasticity rests on this chemical called myelin, which you could say is like paving on your neural pathways. It's really like insulation on a wire that causes electricity to flow up to a hundred times faster. And when we have um, a myelinated neuron, we just flow there and that's what we do. And it just feels normal, which is like learning your native language. So nobody is born born knowing their native language, but when you're baby, you have a lot of myelin. So whatever is repeated around you, you build these new pathways and then the words just come. But Mm -hmm. as an adult, if you try to learn a new language, my gosh, it's so hard to connect neurons in adulthood that you have to repeat it a lot. And then you struggle to look for a word, which is the struggle of trying to activate neurons that are not built up. So when do we have a lot of myelin? It's before age eight and during puberty. And the reason it's during puberty is because in the world of our ancestors, to avoid inbreeding, that it was common to move out of your native group into another group. Even monkeys, even though they don't understand genetics, they move, not just monkeys, every mammal, they move to another group. Every animal has a way even plants have a way to avoid inbreeding um, by dispersing in one way or another. Now, when you disperse, then you often have to learn a new language or new faces and new customs, new ways to find food. So that's why we had high neuroplasticity in adolescence that gives us the opportunity to rewire. Now, once you're in your 20s, you have less myelin, 
And then it's harder to build new pathways, which is why you run on that neural network you built when you were young. Oh my goodness. Like a lot of pressure for parents. Okay. 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 Wow. That is so cool though, because that also is the reason why our kids go away from us right? Mm. In those teen years. And we take yes. personally and, yes. you know, they're exactly. experimenting, which yes. is hard. Uh, but, oh, that makes so much sense. Exactly. Exactly. Isn't that great? I know it was, it's very helpful. And the other thing uh, related to that, when a monkey leaves the group it's born into and looks for another group, they don't just accept it very easily. So it has to work hard to gain acceptance. And it's very motivated to do that because it could get eaten by a predator while it's isolated. So it does it with a great sense of urgency. So it doesn't that explain our kids is like they leave us, but then they have this life or death sense of urgency about getting acceptance elsewhere. And they don't get mating opportunity if they don't do that in nature. So I watched all these nature videos and from David Attenborough, his early oh. series. Love it's like, him. Wow. This is, yeah, it's like, this is, this is the key to our emotions. Wow. Oh, I love anything David Attenborough, by the way. Uh, yeah. He's just wonderful. That is just beyond fascinating. I've never heard about the inbreeding part of it. That makes so much sense. Like, of course, like, how do we, how do the how do animals stop themselves from inbreeding? Right. I never thought of that before. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, Loretta. You're so amazing. I just want to say thank you so much for everything that you've told me. I could literally talk to you all day long and uh, I hope everybody listening has really appreciated it too, because it just opens the door to understanding ourselves more and therefore understanding our kids and not having all that internal dialogue that gets in the way that really stops us from seeing what's really going on. And I just, I have learned so much from you. Literally, if you could see my mind blowing, you wouldn't see sparks flying because it's, it's just been incredible. So I want to just talk about what you have for us and, uh, and that's in the parent toolbox. So if you're not a part of the parent toolbox, please go to www.parent-toolbox.com and it is an ever-evolving box toolbox full of tools and resources to help you in your parenting and Loretta's resources are here. So this is what she has for us. She has a free gift, which is a book called anxiety, what turns it on and what turns it off. So, um, first of all, do you, can you tell us a little bit about that book? Sure. Well, cortisol is the stress chemical. And again, it's yeah. natural. And when you understand how it's wired by past experience, you could find your power to redirect it. And to get that PDF book, um, you put your email into this form, which also sends you a five-day happy chemical jumpstart, which is one email a day for five days explaining the four happy chemicals and one on explaining neuroplasticity. That's great. And is that something you can do with your family? Like you do it for yourself and then you invite your kids to do it at the same time? Uh, yes, if they're willing, that would be great. I, I learned all of this after my kids grew up, but they were not so willing. But I should yeah. also mention, um, uh, I gave you the, uh, I should have put that on the list. Um, I have a parents teachers page that is, um, I'll put that down. It, yeah, we'll put it, it in the show notes. Yeah, I have um, a version for eight-year-olds 
that is um, attractive and fun. It's called Know Your Monkey Brain. Then mm. I have another version for teenagers. So. Okay. Uh, that's great. Okay, good. So thank you for that. We'll include that in the parent toolbox. We'll, we'll have, we'll have it all in there. I said show notes, but I meant in the toolbox. So what you'll find is when you go to the parent toolbox, you will see the listing for this episode. And within it will be the link to download the book. Plus we have some handouts from you as well, just explaining what the four chemicals are and, uh, and also that link to the parent teacher, uh, page so you can get that um you can get that those handouts as well so uh, it's all so good and again i just want to thank you so much for the work that you're doing thank you for being on my show and my podcast i mean i just appreciate it so much and anything to help parents have an easier time and if you if there's anything you want to say just as we as we sign off here i'd love to invite you to do that yeah um i have a free video series um, so it's called you have power over your brain.com that's on the list and oh, that's yes. very entertaining. So you could watch that with your kids. Okay. And then I have a new course, intermammalinstitute.org slash course. So everything, all my books are at the intermammal Institute, but, um, intermammalinstitute slash course dot org slash course is my new video course. It has 25 lessons and it really uh, brings you mm. step by step to build new neural pathways to turn on your happy chemicals in new ways. That's and I just sent you a link to the parents teachers page. Yeah, that's great. And I'll, I'll make sure that we include that. Thank you. And I just want to say, these are the, these are the titles of your book, of your books, uh, ha Habits of a Happy Brain, Tame Your Anxiety, The Science of Positivity. I mean, that's just to name a few of them. So your work is so valuable in today's day and age and today in just the way we are today and, and the things that we're facing in this world, you know, it's not easy. So I just want to say thank you again. Thank you for being here. And uh, I am better for, for having met you and for having talked to you. So thank you so much, Loretta. And again, it is intermammalinstitute.org. Thanks for the great questions. Thank you for listening to this edition of my podcast, Parenting Our Future. I'm parent coach Robin McMahon. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please share it with someone who you think might also need to hear this message. And don't forget to subscribe. And if you like my work, I'd be grateful if you gave me a five-star rating. For those of you who like my content and want more, visit me at yellingcurebook.com to get your copy of my book and to find other resources to help you. Until next time, I am wishing you and your family peace and connection.